and welcome. This is an exciting day that we enjoy as a church family. This is Global Impact Sunday, and we try to take this time to help uh, just focus our, our minds on God's purposes for us as a church and to have an impact not only in the East Bay area, but also around the world as we declare the gospel. And we have a very special guest with us today. So this guest, he is an old and dear friend of mine. We actually went to seminary together back in this long, old-time era known as the 90s. Do you remember those? Some of you are like, what was that? Others of you are like, oh yeah, I was there. But yeah, the youth in the back are like, 90s, man, that's ancient. I know, I know, it's true. But uh, we uh, enjoyed uh, you know, having some classes together. But Mike worked in the bookstore I know I've told this story before, but in the bookstore there, Grace Bookshack, is what it was called, Grace's Bookshack, and I would always ask him, hey, what do you think of this book? And I would get, off the top of his head, like a, a just beautiful rundown review of, you know, this book is good for this, this, and this. You might want to try this one, though, and this one will save you a little money. And I'm like, ah, thank you, right? So uh, Mike is very knowledgeable. He went on to uh, get his PhD at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, he has taught at the Cornerstone Seminary up in Vallejo, and now he's been actually traveling around the world uh, with BMW Ministries. No, it's not the car, okay? It is Biblical Ministries Worldwide, and uh, he's uh, doing in, uh, international leadership training, and I'll let him tell you more about that, but he's a dear friend of our church. He's a dear friend of our family, so would you please welcome Mike Canham. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's good to be with you, and good to be back with you after, I think, two years. I think two years ago was the last time I was out here, so it's good to, good to be reunited with you. And I'd like to take you to 1 Peter 3 this morning. Um, <clears throat> like Paul... Peter knows, also knows how to both summarize the gospel and apply it to his readers who are suffering for their faith. Indeed, for Peter's first epistle appears to be built around summaries of the crosswork of Christ. For example, chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, and 18 through 21. Chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. And we're going to be looking at 3, 18 through 22 this morning. And then you have another... Uh, reference in 4.19 and 5.10. So, um, the gospel summary includes his substitutionary death, his triumphant, his vindicating resurrection, and his triumphant ascension, which are all three of those mentioned in this passage. Packed into these verses are nine transforming realities of the gospel that provide both perspective on our sufferings and power to triumph even in the midst of them. So the first aspect of it is Jesus' work as an example for us. Chapter 3, verse 18, 4. Uh, that throws us back into the context of verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Um, Peter had earlier underscored this, the ex exemplary nature of the death of Christ in 1 Peter 2.21 when he said, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So Christ's death was more than an example, but it was not less than that. It was an example for us of how to uh, bear up under uh, unjust suffering. Then secondly, Christ's work is vicarious, or it's substitutionary. Uh, Verse 18 goes on to say, For Christ also died for sins. Um, Christ died for our sins. The concept of substitution is at the heart of the gospel. In the Old Testament, remember Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. You have he for us six different times in those verses where he took our place. In the New Testament, consider John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 3, and verse 5. And he was manifested to take away sin, and in him is no sin. Chapter 4 and verse 10, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. First Peter, both here and in chapter 2 verse 24, he says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Uh, Then you have preeminently the Apostle Paul, who is the Apostle of Substitutionary Atonement. Romans 4.25 was delivered over to death for our transgressions and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, in his summary of the gospel, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered unto you that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And then my favorite text uh, in this regard is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 21. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he took our place in order that we might take his place. He took our place as a sinner, even though he was utterly and absolutely sinless, in order that we might take his place as being declared to be righteous before God, even though we weren't righteous. So there's a dual exchange there. Um. The substitutionary nature of the death of Christ is what actually makes it an example for us. If I were walking down the street and saw somebody jump off a bridge and drown, I wouldn't think much of the value of their death. They basically just took their own life. But if they jumped off the bridge to save somebody who was drowning and in the process lost their life, then that makes their death more significant. They died trying to save somebody else. And Jesus 
Um, if his death was not substitutionary, if he didn't take our place, then his death was nothing more than a divine suicide. But he took our place. He died on the cross for our sins. And, and um, you know, the, this concept of the substitutionary nature of the death of Christ is largely ridiculed by theological liberals. There's one man by the name of G. Bromley Oxenham, who was a Methodist bishop who was the um, president of the World Council of Churches. And he said, I would rather go to hell than go to heaven on the back of another man. And unless he repented of that, then he evidently got his wish. Because no one gets to heaven except on the back of another man. And that would be Jesus. Um, Recall that sin separates. The Lord, Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 says, The Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save. His ear is not stopped that it cannot hear. But your sins have separated between you and God. And so... It's a reality which is central to Jesus' cry of abandonment on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, at that point, was judicially in our place. He was separated from the Father because of our sin. So Christ's work number three is final. Notice Peter goes on to say he died for sins once for all. In contrast to those Old Testament sacrifices which had to be continuously offered because they could not take away sin, Hebrews 10 verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. They couldn't then, they can't now. Um, But Jesus' death, in contrast to that, was once for all. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 Uh, verses 10 and following highlights this. When it says that, um, For by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Uh, Verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Uh, Remember his words on the cross, It is finished. John 19, verse 30. Which meant there's nothing more that needed to be added to his work on the cross for our sins. His work is final. Number four, Christ's work is righteous. Notice that uh, verse 18 goes on to say that he died the just for the unjust. These words expand on the substitutionary aspect of Christ that we already referenced. But the stress here is on the righteousness of Christ contrasted with the unrighteousnesses of those for whom he died. Compare Isaiah 53, verse 11, which um, makes the comment, My righteous servant will justify the many. P. 
Peter in Acts 3.14 says that you suffered the just one to be crucified for you. Paul in Acts 22 verse 14 and uh, Stephen in Acts 7.52 also both describe Jesus Christ specifically as the one who is righteous. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not at all. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I would have expected to have read there merciful. Because mercy is usually what we think of when we think of the death of Christ in connection with our sins. Or we think of Jesus having mercy on us. And while that's true, um, the focus of the scripture is on his justice. That Jesus' death on our behalf satisfied the justice of God. This language also speaks of the legal concept of imputation, where God took our sins and placed them on Christ and took his righteousness and gifted that to us. We have an Old Testament picture of that in Zechariah 3, where Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the Lord. And Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the angel of the Lord says to Satan, basically, shut up. Um, uh, rebukes him and tells him to be quiet. And Joshua is clothed with filthy garments as he's standing there before the Lord. And, and um, God has him remove the filthy garments and places clean garments on him, which is a picture of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ in Scripture. Uh, to have someone who's just justly take on the penalty of someone who's unjust seems unjust to us, seems unfair. Uh, but both Paul and John declare that the propitiation of Christ satisfied the justice of God. Romans 3, verse 25, whom God has set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood in order that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So this is the audacity of the gospel. Only forgiveness without reason can match sin without excuse, as one commentator has said. So Christ's work is righteous. Number five, Christ's work reconciles us. So that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. This speaks of reconciliation and the resulting access that we have to God the Father. As a result of Christ's death. Consider what Hebrews 10. Again Hebrews 10 verse 19 and following. Means against the backdrop of the Old Testament restrictions of access. Remember the high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies one day a year with blood on his hands. And then you had the, the, um, the outer court there. Then you had the court of the, um, the Jewish men that surrounded the temple that only Jewish men could get into. Then you had the court of the women that surrounded that that only Jewish women could get into. Um, and then you had 
separated from that, the court of the Gentiles. And then you have signs that were, they've actually uncovered signs uh, archaeologically that said any Gentile that passes this point uh, will have himself to thank for his death, which will inevitably follow. Because Gentiles were not allowed in. Uh, and God was sending a message in the Old Testament that you don't, you don't access me except by blood. And so in light of that, we read in Hebrews 10 verse 19, um, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he, has promised, he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this verse talks, this passage talks about the fact that we can enter the holy place by the blood of Christ, something that the Old Testament saints never experienced. Um, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh. Um, remember Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, that our sin separates us. The amazing thing is that the cross does so much more than satisfy the righteousness of God. It also restores the relationship with God. It would be like if, if you were to appear before me as a judge and you were guilty and somebody um, stepped forward to pay the penalty for your sins, I would say to you, um, so-and-so, because of your, um, you are guilty, but your, your penalty has been paid by this person over here, so you're free to go, but so help me, don't, I don't ever want to see you in my courtroom again. That would be justification, but there's no reconciliation in that. Reconciliation is when the judge, after pronouncing the verdict and pronouncing the satisfaction of the law, stands up and goes down and embraces the defendant. So Jesus' death on the cross meant so much more than justification it also meant reconciliation in the human realm reconciliation usually re involves requires concession from both parties because usually both parties are wrong to some degree but Jesus the absolutely sinless one had no need nor requirement to be reconciled but he came all the way to meet us at our point of need so compare all this with what Paul said in Romans 5, verses 10 and 11, when he says, For if when we were the enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life.
And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21 also highlights this when it says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then of course you have Ephesians 2, which begins by highlighting what we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature the children of wrath. And then you have in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And then verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God has prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. So verses 4 through 10 describe what Christ did against the backdrop of what we were, verses 1 through 3. And then verses 11 and following of Ephesians 2 highlight what we are now as a result of that. But now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, and whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You talk about the connections that this passage highlights. We have our, our, our connection restored with God but derivatively, our connection restored with each other as a result of Christ's reconciling work on the cross. And then number six, Christ's work transforms death. Notice the end of verse 18 of 1 Peter 3. 
having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Um, Peter will later refer to Christ's resurrection, chapter 3, verse 21. So his point here seems to be to remind us that Jesus Christ was not delivered from death, but actually went through it. And that has been and will be the lot of many who suffer on Christ's behalf. But even this worst-case scenario is a best-case scenario for the believer because by enduring it, Jesus changed the nature of death for every believer. Consider Jesus' last word on the cross in Luke 23, verse 46, when he said, uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in the emphasis in 1 Peter on Jesus entrusting his soul to his Father in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 4, verse 19. Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator and doing what is right. So between his death and his resurrection, Jesus was absent from the body, but present with his father in paradise. And so you consider what Paul had to say in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Knowing that he's about to be executed, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring thee safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the same Paul who had written in verse 6, I'm now ready to be offered. Um, he knew that, that execution would result from this imprisonment that he had. And yet he says that all these things have happened rather to deliver me. The Lord will rescue me. Um, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, when he makes the statement, after my departure, I want you to be reminded of the things that I have taught you. The word for departure there is actually the Greek word exodus, which calls to mind the exodus when God delivered his people from the land of Egypt. So Peter uh, viewed his own impending martyrdom as an exodus. So contrast our own sufferings in this world with the enjoying of an eternal inheritance in the next. Uh, compare chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 of First Peter. Where Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. There are many other references in 1 Peter chapter 5 to the contrast of between our sufferings now and the glory which will be revealed in us to come. And then verses 19 to 21, 
of 1 Peter 3, which admittedly is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to interpret, um, where uh, verses 19 to 21 are a parenthesis, where Peter uh, goes from talking about Christ's passion on the cross for our sins to his preaching. And um, there are lots of questions that are raised by these verses. Um, and there are at least five major questions that are raised by them. Um, what did he preach? When did he preach? Where did he preach? To whom did he preach? And then what does baptism now save you mean in verse 21 of 1 Peter 3? And the way that you answer one question is going to impact the way that you answer another question. For example, if you see the preaching as essentially the gospel, um, then that's going to limit who he's preaching to and when he's preaching uh, to them. So I wrote a paper on this in seminary, and um, I'm going to, without giving you all the reasons for my view, I'm going to basically tell you what I believe this passage to be teaching. Um, first of all, what, what did he preach? He preached the gospel. Um, this is the, the word is used interchangeably with, with the word evangelize in chapter 4 and verse 6 when he preaches the gospel to those who are dead. Um, um, the word keruso that's used here in verse 19 is the word uh, is a, the most common word for preaching in the New Testament. It always indicates a response on the part of the people or a responsibility to respond on the part of those that hear the word preached, which rules out um, angels and rules out people that have already died. So when did he preach? This is not referring to a preaching that took place between Christ's death and his resurrection, but a preaching that took place back in Noah's day, um, where Christ went and preached through Noah to the people that were alive in Noah's day. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Um, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, identifies Noah as a preacher of righteousness. During those years that he was building the ark, Noah wasn't just building the ark, he was also preaching to those that were... Um, surrounding the ark and his fellow countrymen who rejected the gospel, who rejected what Peter had to say and didn't take refuge in the ark. So where did he preach? He didn't preach in hell. He preached on earth. Um, to whom did he preach? These were human beings, not angels, who were disobedient in Noah's day, who were then alive on earth, but are now in prison, in hell. And then what does baptism now saves you mean? Verse 21. Well, 
Uh, I think Peter here is referring to spirit baptism, which is the only kind of baptism that can save. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you are all baptized by one body, by one spirit into one body. Um, uh, most of the time, baptism, I think, unless it, the context clearly indicates the contrary, most of the time, baptism is referred to in the New Testament, every time in a saving context, it refers to the Spirit's work of baptizing us, not the water baptism. In fact, verse 21 goes on to highlight where Peter says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. He highlights here, he's not talking about water baptism. So what's the point of these verses? In the context of 1 Peter 3, um, this passage highlights the discriminating aspect of Christ's work. That the preaching of the gospel simultaneously represents judgment for those who reject the message and salvation for those who believe it. Verses 19 and 20 talks about the judgment of God upon those that reject the message. Verse 21 talks about salvation for those who believe. In other words, the gospel discriminates. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, when he says, For the word of the cross, or the preaching of the cross, is to those who are perishing foolishness, but unto us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Um, see also how water, both the Red Sea, compare 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 2, when, when uh, Paul makes reference to our fathers who were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This refers to the deliverance of God's people across the Red Sea. But they didn't get wet that day. The only ones who got wet were the Egyptian army who tried to pursue them, and they got dunked and did not come up again. Because the Red Sea represented both the deliverance of God's people and judgment on God's enemies at the same time. The flood represented the same thing. Uh, deliverance of God's people, namely Noah and his family, while at the same time judgment upon those who are outside the ark. Jesus is often mocked second coming, compared by Peter to the flood, and Second Peter chapter 3 similarly discriminates between believer and unbeliever. When Jesus returns and catches us up together to, be, to meet the Lord in the air, um, that will be deliverance for us, but at the same time, um, the day of the Lord comes upon those who are unbelievers and represents God's judgment at his second coming. So what's the application for us? The application is to identify with Christ. Romans 6 Verses 3 and following. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, 
so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer the master over him. For in the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So we want to identify with Christ. Secondly, know that he is with you and draw courage from that. Joshua chapter 1. Where, where Joshua is being commissioned to take the place of Moses who had just died. Be strong and courageous. Verse 6. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? And then for the third time he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Compare Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? Matthew 28, verse 20. Uh, in the, the Great Commission when Jesus commands us to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And then he says in verse 20, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the consummation of the age. When Jesus sends us forth to preach, to proclaim the gospel in the world, he promises that he will be with us. Hebrews 13, verse 5, I have said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. And then the third thing is realize that Jesus has triumphed, which leads us back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul has noted that the bodily resurrection of Christ is central to the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 19. It was a preached event. It was a prophesied event. It was a proven event. And it was a prerequisite event, meaning that 
without the resurrection of Christ, we are all still in our trespasses and sins. We're dead in our sins. We are of all men most miserable if Jesus is not raised from the dead. What's the significance of it here? For Christ's work, the resurrection of Christ meant vindication. Consider that Jesus Christ was absolutely righteous and sinless, and yet he was still crucified. Consider all the testimonies leading up to his crucifixion, starting with uh, Pontius Pilate, who says six times over, I find no fault in him. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, comes back to the temple and throws the money on the floor of the temple, says, I have uh, sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate's wife even sends him an email and says, have nothing to do with this man, for he's a righteous man. Um, The thief on the cross, the one who repented, uh, rebukes his his, uh, fellow thief and says... Um, leave this man alone. We're getting what we deserve justly, but he has done nothing wrong. Then you have that Roman centurion who was overseeing the whole thing, uh, who says uh, in Luke's gospel, he says, truly this was a righteous man. In Matthew's gospel, he says, truly he was the son of God. Well, which did he say? I think he said both. He was a righteous man because he was who he said he was. He was the Son of God. And yet Jesus Christ was crucified for claiming to be the Son of God. But there's one voice who hasn't spoken yet. And that's God the Father. God the Father who speaks from heaven and resurrects Jesus Christ from the dead. He reverses the human verdict that put him on the cross in the first place. Romans chapter 1, verse, verses 3 and 4, who was declared to be, who was of the, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness through the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, notice it doesn't say that he became the Son of God by the resurrection. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ meant that he was who he said he was, and it also meant that his priestly work on our behalf was accepted. Because how did you know that the priest offering the blood on the altar, how do you know that his work was accepted in the Old Testament? He came out. He came out of the place of the offering. So Jesus, uh, who offered his own blood, um, the evidence that God accepted his work on our behalf was that God brought him out of the tomb. So Jesus' work on the cross was vindicated by his resurrection. For us... What does, the resurre- uh, what does the resurrection of Christ mean? For us, it means salvation. The resurrection of Christ impacts every aspect of our salvation. If we look at the past, we have been regenerated, and we have been justified. First um, Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So our regeneration, our being born again, is linked to the resurrection of Christ. Our justification, where we're declared to be righteous, is also linked to his resurrection. Romans 4, 25 and 5, 1, as I referenced this passage earlier, that says that he was delivered over to death for our transgressions and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, this is the past work of uh, Christ in our salvation, which saves us from the penalty of sin, both actually and judicially. Presently, our sanctification is connected with the resurrection of Christ. Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is the source of a believer's power over sin, which is the present tense of our salvation. We are being sanctified. And then finally... Our glorification is connected with his resurrection. Because he lives, we will live also. Um, His resurrection is a guarantee of our future resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and 14. Uh, I I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, uh, that you do not grieve as others which have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus both died and rose again, So we also believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ Jesus. So his resurrection is a guarantee of our future resurrection. Because he lives, we will live also. And of course, our glorification, uh, our future tense of our salvation, will remove us from us the very presence and even the possibility of sin. And then finally, number nine, Christ's work is triumphant. Verse 22 of 1 Peter 3. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This is one of the 26 times or so in the New Testament that Psalm 110, verse 1, is quoted. Uh, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is pictured here as seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Um, So the theme of Psalm 110, very simply, is this. Jesus is presently ruling in a triumphant reign that will climax in the subjugation of all of his enemies. And so you have three divisions within Psalm 110. You have Jesus' present rule as king, verses 2 and 3, where he rules in the midst of his enemies who are judged, restrained, and even redeemed by him. It provides the foundation for the Great Commission. 
where we go into all the world and preach the gospel because all authority has been given to Christ who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Um, He rules forever as a priest after the order of Melchizedek in verse 4 of Psalm 110. And then he will rule as a judge who comes and the earth will be filled with corpses, the Bible says. And then you look at the opening chapters of the book of Revelation and you find all these people who are put to death as a result of the seal judgments and the um, other judgments that are referenced in the book of Revelation. Um, Because Jesus, when he returns, will return as a judge. So these are the three aspects of the rule of Christ. Um, He rules now as a king. He will rule forever as a priest. And he will rule as a judge when he returns. The point of this verse is that the enemies of the gospel have never and will not triumph over Jesus. This is the key to understanding verses 19 to 21, whatever the interpretation that you put on the Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. Jesus has already triumphed over his enemies, and one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess him as Lord. Philippians 2 verses 10 and 11. As we have already done in salvation, as we have already done in salvation, Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus still now calls all men everywhere to repent, verse 30, but one day he will return as judge, Acts 17, verse 31. So as believers who will suffer, we need to remember both the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. Jesus' patient suffering will show us meekness when we are interrogated for our faith in Christ. Verse 15 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. His glorious triumph will give us courage to face our accusers, knowing that we do not fight for a victory, but we fight from the victory he has already won on our behalf. And his ascension foreshadows our future ascension and rule with him. Because he lives, we will live also. So the death of Christ the work of Christ on the cross, these nine transforming realities, um, that that Jesus' death is an example for us, that his death was a substitution for us. His work is final. His work is righteous. His work reconciles us to God. His work transforms death. His work discriminates. His work is vindicated by the resurrection of Christ. And his work is triumphant as he went and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So that gives us perspective. In our time of uh, when we suffer, we're doing what's right. And we have everything in our culture lining up against us these days. That we will 
suffer persecution for doing what's right, for standing for what's right. Uh, but in the midst of that, remember Jesus. Remember his cross work on our behalf that not only justifies us, but reconciles us to God and gives us the good example, the best example that we could ever have to follow. So with that, um, I'm done. So we have a few minutes for questions? or Yeah, th- so thank you, Mike, for uh, just bringing the word to us. And yeah, we love having these times to interact with our guests. And so do we have any questions at all that anyone might have about um, what Mike talked about? Sometimes, so sometimes just they got it. Sometimes, you know, they're they're not. But any questions at all? About anything? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. It's not about what you uh, spoke about, but so uh, where are you going next? Where, where am I you? going next? Uh, Honduras in February, and Egypt in March. So it's exciting. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So he's 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 heading around a lot of places. So. He's busy. Oh, yeah. Also, uh, some people probably don't have a don't know exactly what it is you do. So, do you want to get a quick synopsis of what it is that you your ministry is? Okay, I travel to teach um, uh, leadership training all over the world with um, uh, church leaders. I usually connected with a seminary uh, that that is. Um, that are located in different parts of the world. So I go for modular classes to teach. Um, I was in Mongolia in April, taught uh, the doctrine of God to um, Mongolian pastors and, and people who are training to be pastors. And so it was a wonderful opportunity to be able to do that. So I'm um, uh traveling to teach different places, trying to partner with different people uh, around the world to preach the gospel and to train them to reach their own people for the gospel. So that's, in a nutshell, what I do. Thanks. Yeah, great. Any other questions for Mike? We'll talk with him more upstairs a little bit, but any others? Oh, Janet? Oh, nine points. Okay. Reiterating the nine points. Okay. Jesus' work was an example for us. Jesus' work is vicarious or substitutionary. His work is final. His work is righteous. His work reconciles us. His work transforms death. His work discriminates his work is vindicated, and his work is triumphant. So, please. All right. Well, folks, we'll see you upstairs. Okay.